Friday. Hopefully you've got a handout. I got to tell you, uh, there might be few of us this morning, and there are a few of us. I'm praying for the rest of them, uh, uh, but uh, we sound good singing. Um, I was really surprised uh, um, how few there were after uh, listening to us sing. So we sound good singing, and uh, and that's a good thing. If you have your uh, Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Asher told me when I was, um, oh, by the way, you should have a handout if you uh, are online. You should be getting a, a link where you can get that handout and download it online. Um, so hopefully you have that. When I was preparing yesterday, um, Asher was around and uh, he said at some point, you know, you can just stop writing. We do have a soccer game this after, or tomorrow afternoon. So uh, if you could cut it short, it'd be a lot, a lot better. Um, so uh, I doubt I'll fulfill his his request, but we'll see. Um, well, I'm excited to see us finish Romans 13. Uh, it's, this has been uh, a very helpful chapter, um, but it's also a very challenging chapter. Um, and so let's uh, let's look at it together and trust uh, in the Lord to do his work. Verse 11 says, besides this, you know, the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, for the opportunity to open your word together, thank you for the amazing mercies that you have offered throughout the ages to have this recorded word at our fingertips. Thank you. So we believe very firmly that the way you will shepherd us and save us unto the new kingdom is by your spirit through your word. You have united us in faith in Christ by this word. So, Father, I pray that these words written so long ago would be the word of God to your people today. God, my soul needs to hear the night is far gone. The day has come. Father, I pray that that would be heard by my brothers and sisters here today. Father, I pray. If there's someone here that has not been awakened yet from the sleep of sin to embrace the Savior Jesus, that you would awaken them, help them realize the danger they're in, and awaken them to Christ. And I do pray that the one who deserves all glory, all praise, all 
spreading. Jesus Christ will get what is due to his name in our time together. We ask these things to you, Father. We ask them through King Jesus' name. And we trust your spirit. He will work among his people through his word. Amen. On the night of June the 5th, 1944, uh, Adolf Hitler and his guest enjoyed a long night of drugs and alcohol. They talked late into the night. Tucked away in his private residence in the Bavarian Alps, the Fuhrer, finally retired for bed, most folks think, somewhere around two in the morning, unaware of what was happening on the beaches of Normandy, France. As Hitler closed his eyes to sleep, brave American men shut their eyes as they jumped out of aircraft into the dark night of war and the assault of D-Day was on. As Adolf Hitler slept, the Allied forces were dropping units behind enemy lines, utilizing all sorts of techniques to try to confuse the Germans. Around 6.30 a.m., the Fuhrer was moving now into deep sleep and the Allies' forces were moving on to the shores of the beaches there in Normandy. By now, German lines of communication were ablaze with the news that the attack, this attack was happening. The German war genius, Erwin Rommel, was itchy to direct his panzer tank divisions towards the beach of Normandy and interrupt the assault. Yet Rommel was under strict orders. Whatever you do, you don't move any divisions without the Fuhrer's approval. Eight o'clock came. Hitler slept. Nine o'clock came. Ten o'clock came. Hitler is still sleeping. The assault is still happening. Eleven o'clock comes and goes. There's no movement of any tanks and Hitler is still sleeping. Somewhere around noon, finally somewhere around noon, the Fuhrer awakens. But even awakened, he's not able to think straight because of all the drugs from the night before. He believes it's all just really a decoy. It's not that much to worry about. It was not until four o'clock in the afternoon on June the 6th that finally Rommel was able to begin moving tanks towards the beach. While the Germans had roughly 1,400 tanks in the Normandy theater, it is believed only about 400 saw any action in the first 48 hours. So if you want a good debate, you get historians to try to answer the question, what happens if Rommel could have acted immediately? And there's a lot of debate, but there's no doubt about this. A lot more Americans would have lost their lives. And there's even the distinct possibility that D-Day would have been remembered very differently. The ironic thing is Hitler had spent the last nine months prior studying for nothing else, but when would they attack in France? And the night when he should have been the most ready, he was fast asleep. In the final verses of Romans 13, Paul exhorts believers that we should know 
the time. We should be watching. We should be found awake. Paul commands us that this is not the time for sleep or stupor. It's the time for alertness. So in this passage, we're going to see three commands, and it will make up the organization of the sermon. Command number one, wake from sleep. Command number two, cast off works of darkness. That would be verses 12 and 13. And then finally, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be verse 14. I believe in the series of commands, if you watch these together, you will see the logic of the Christian gospel. And it is nothing less than stunning. First, wake from sleep. So let's begin there with verses 11 to 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So Paul begins verse 11 with this. You know the time. You know that the hour has come. He says in verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So Paul speaks to believers, reminding them, this is key, they already know the time. That's key. He's reminding them they already know the time. It is the time when the night is gone and the day is dawning. It is the promised day. It is the day of the rule of Christ. So one of the big distinctions between believers and unbelievers is this. Believers in Jesus believe the God-man, when he came, into the, came to the earth, he put the, wor- the world on notice as if he wrote on the skies, the day is coming soon. It's coming very soon. His incarnation put the world on notice. And on the other hand, One of the strongest indictments that Jesus offers to the scribes and the Pharisees and the unbelievers during his day is their inability to understand the time, their inability to see the signs of the times. There in Matthew 16, Jesus is not messing around. Verse 1, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, oh, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, oh, it's going to be a stormy day. Sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the very sign of Jonah. The Pharisees have the God of the universe in flesh right before their eyes, and they ask him to give them some sign that they may believe in him. Jesus points them to the deep irony that they've learned to read the skies, to discern the weather, all the while the maker of the skies, the decider of the weather, stands right before their eyes, and they cannot see the times. So one distinction A major distinction between a believer and unbeliever, and it's showed all the way through Christian history, 
is Christians believe that Jesus has come and forever marked the world with the great truth. He will return. This is the day, the day that Jesus will rule and reign. So funny World War II history trivia question for you is this. What does D, the D, stand for in D-Day? So you can come up with all sorts of cool things. There's Doomsday or Decision Day or the Departure. But it's kind of a funny trick question because the D just stands for day. It literally is the day-day. Um, that's what D is. As soldiers were training for a major assault, they spoke of all their plans in terms of day-D, that day. On day four, we will be packed. On day three, we're going to roll out. On day two, we rest. On D minus one, we move into position. And then D-Day, we attack the day-day. Paul is asking Christians to live in a similar fashion. He's telling us to wake up and look at the times and know we are living in the last days. He's asking us to make our plans, set our priorities, base our actions on D-Day, the day, the day of salvation. So what does Paul mean when he says the hour has come? I think this is a really fair question. I mean, didn't Paul write that like, 2,000 years ago, and still Jesus hasn't returned? I mean, that's a fair question. He's saying, he's writing this like it's going to happen any minute, but that was 2,000 years ago, and there's still no Jesus fully reigning. Well, look at his point in verse 11. He describes it further. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul defines the hour, that time of which he speaks, as the time of salvation. It is the time which we will inherit the fullness of our salvation. Paul says, when you believed in Jesus, you believed the day would come. That's what part of believing in Jesus is. I believe there's coming a day when he's going to reign. And now, it's even later than when you believed. Therefore, we have all the reason to live with greater urgency, not less. By definition, by definition, we are closer to salvation than we have ever been. That was a helpful, sobering sentence to write. I thought about that a lot. Feel the gravity of that. Right now, you believers are closer to salvation than you have ever been. Paul says it's time to wake up. It's time to live alert. Command two, cast off works of darkness. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, here you get this command. So then, if all that's true, if all that's true, then what? So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Of light. Paul goes on to his second command, cast off the works of darkness. He tells us, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The Romans, they would have been very typical with the, or familiar with the typical Roman way of going about war, preparing for war. And that is the Roman soldiers the night before their D-Day, they partied hard before a battle. 
And, and then they woke up and they put on the armor and they went into battle, knowing that many of them would die. You can imagine a Roman general rousing the troops, saying exactly what Paul is saying. Cast off last night, boys, and put on your armor. Paul tells believers in a very similar fashion. He's borrowing right from the imagery that they knew. Cast off the deeds of your former lives, the deeds of the night, and put on the armor that aligns with your new lives in the new kingdom. And then he goes on and defines the deeds of darkness. He says, let us walk properly in the daytime, not, and now here comes the deeds of darkness, in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now, here's the irony of that. If you had to define what were probably the deeds of darkness carried out by these Roman soldiers the night before as they partied, that sounds like a pretty fair list. Orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. That would probably sum it up. Paul is telling Christians that we need to set these type of actions aside. That may be good for pagan soldiers. Why? Well, think about it. If you're a pagan soldier, you're entering the night, number one, believing that you very may well die the next day. Two, you're believing if you're a pagan soldier, there's really no life after death anyway. Might as well enjoy all that I can. Those actions make good sense for pagan soldiers, but they don't make good sense for Christian believers. Why? Because we've already been told the night is almost over. The day is already approaching. You don't even have time for that stuff. Second, because unlike pagans, we believe that death is not the end, but merely the beginning. And finally, because that unlike the soldier who believes that when the day that when he dies, all things will cease. The Christian believer believes and is confident that when the day dawns, we will live more fully than we have ever dreamed of living. Paul describes the way that we should walk. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Now follow the logic. When is daytime? Daytime is life in the new kingdom of Jesus Christ. When he visibly and completely rules over every corner of the world and over every corner of our hearts and our souls. Daytime living is living under the complete rule and reign of Jesus. Paul says we are to walk in daytime living. As such, we should walk now in daytime living. And he doesn't just say sit idly by and stroll into the new kingdom. Look what he says. He says, put on the armor of light. Well, whatever armor is, I can tell you one thing, it's not, it's not your PJs. It's not hanging out in your pajamas. This implies we're going to have to do some real battle on the side of light. We will need to be ready to work and to fight the forces, both within and without, that fight against the day. Paul spells this out for us a whole lot more in Ephesians chapter 4. I think I gave you the reference to that in your handout. And so as we turn the corner on the final command, the third command, here there's so much to unpack. And I pray you'll dig in, focus with me, and see this Christian logic. 
Here it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't give the flesh what it needs to be the flesh. If you listen to it in passing, especially if you've been around the Bible for a long time, you go, oh yeah, that's right. Oh, amen to that one. Don't give the flesh that stuff. Let's keep on going. If you actually let it sink in, it's massive. It's weighty. It seems impractical. It might even feel impossible. The desires tempt us in all sorts of ways. We are tempted with anger to lash out with a temper. Tempted to lust, to give in to perverse sexual desires. Tempted to give up on our commitments, to fall back on what we have pledged. Tempted to seek revenge, to seek our own personal retribution. Tempted to despise our enemies, desire to desire the worst for those who have wronged us. The full weight of this is further felt when you recall the passage immediately before this one in verses 8 through 11. You may recall when Mark began his sermon on those verses a few weeks ago, he said, this is a very difficult passage. Now that's very interesting from a guy who just preached to us Romans 11, considered one of the hardest passages to understand in all of Scripture. What do you mean it's a difficult passage, Mark? Well, I'll take it. He's not saying it's difficult to understand. It's incredibly difficult to live it out. Verse 8, Paul told us there, and Mark so aptly covered, owe no one anything except to love one another. Well, that first, again, that just feels good, like paint that on a coffee mug. I'd love to see that every morning before I get started. I'll owe no one anything but to love them. All right, right? That feels great. But then you actually start to think about it and go, I don't like owing anybody a dime. You're telling me I got to owe everybody love? Are you serious? Yeah, he's dead serious. I don't even like others half the time. You're telling me to be indebted to them, to love them? That feels impossible. Oh, and don't forget how the chapter started out with such a bang. Paul's commands on how we're to treat authority, in particular governmental authorities. You probably remember that. He commands us. Oh, and by the way, submit to all of those. Friends, that's hard. When you feel the weight of them, you begin to feel the weight that leads you to the logic of Christianity, the logic of the gospel. Stay with me here. Take a deep breath. If you're starting to nod off here, get somebody to elbow you real good. Um, and remember the part about loving your enemies. So if you arrive at the New Testament and you know that Jesus, which most folks, you can ask anybody on the street, is Jesus a loving and merciful person? They're going to say, oh, yeah, definitely. Jesus is I mean, he's the most loving and merciful person. If they don't know anything about him, they know he's loving and, and, and merciful. Then most folks, knowing that, arrive at the New Testament expecting that Jesus is going to really lighten your load. He's going to be a lot less strict and rigid. It's kind of like when a student hears a teacher, he's a great teacher. The student expects the teacher is just going to be really lighthearted, not strict, uh, on, not a big stickler on the rules, just cool. 
But then you read Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels. You're shocked. As, you, as we read together in our opening, Jesus doesn't like the law. He makes it harder. You probably got tired of, of repeating it over and over and over or having Mark repeat over and over and over. You have heard it said. Dot, dot, dot. But I say to you, you've heard it said you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother is liable for judgment. <laughs> Don't know about you, but we all got diagnosed with murder. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. <laughs> you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say that you should love your enemies. What? And then, hold on, that feels weighty. It's like it's like a coach adding sandbags after sandbags to you, telling you, hold this, hold this, hold this, hold this. And then all of a sudden they turns to you and says, and now run up that mountain, right? Run up that big flight of steps. This is Jesus in the same passage. Merciful, sweet, loving Jesus tells us, oh, and by the way, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? I, I can barely move here. And then he ends it with this. This is how he ends that passage. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What? I mean, every kid learns that the default defense is, hey, no one is perfect, right? That's it. Nobody is perfect. Jesus just said he demands what? Perfection. Stay with me. This is Christian logic. When Paul tells us, to not gratify the desires of the flesh. When he tells us to owe others our love. When he tells us to submit to authorities. Even when we don't think they're very great. He is following the same logic of Jesus. He really means that that is the standard. And that's what God expects. This is one of the most misunderstood parts of Christianity. Because Christianity is full of mercy. And full of grace. It is often misunderstood that Christianity is a light on the law. But you cannot find the teacher. I beg you to read the New Testament. Backwards and forwards. Come to me and tell me one teacher who is stronger or more rigid on the law than Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says in Matthew 5, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do it will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so this is where Christianity differs from others that believe, that claim belief in the God of Abraham. Say, this is where Christianity differs from Jews, from Muslims, from Mormons. Each of these religions say, yes, there's a law, but they each have to do one of two things. They either have to relax the standard of the law or they have to relax the standards of obedience. 
That is, they have to either say, well, the law is not as much as you think, or the standard of what you have to do isn't as much as you think. But Jesus doesn't give us an inch of wiggle. He insists the commands of God cannot be relaxed. They cannot be brought down. And then he turns around and he refuses to relax the standards of God's obedience. He says obedience required is nothing short of perfection. Well, that's good for you, Jesus, literally Mr. Perfect. But that's quite bad news for us. How are we to meet such a standard? The gospel answers the question this way. We cannot. Let me say that again. How does the gospel answer the question of you are demanded perfection? Nothing less than it. So what do you do? How do you do it? And the answer by the gospel is very clear. You can't. And so we do one of the hardest things for any of us to ever do. We turn and we ask for help. That salvation is turning to Jesus and asking for help. And how does Jesus help? Well, look with me there in verse 17. The gospel is plain as it can be. And it's funny, before Jesus says any of these, but you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say, all before he says any of those, he gives us the gospel. It's right there. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Jesus affirms that we've already said he did not come in the flesh to end or relax the law. But then comes the gospel statement, the good news statement. I, I have not come to end or abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. Jesus came to perfectly keep the commandments. He came to keep the commandments as they are, unrelaxed, untainted. And he has kept them and fulfilled them. Calvin says something on the lines of he fulfilled the commandments by making alive with the spirit what was already carved on stone. He presented in flesh the reality of that which had only been written down. Okay, well, great. That's great for you, Jesus. Way to go. But how does that help us? On the cross of Christ, Jesus was not treated as a law keeper, but the ultimate law breaker. There he took on our sin. There he took on our law breaking. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, the perfect law keeper, for our sake, was treated as the ultimate law breaker. He became sin on our behalf. He was punished on the cross. And then the second part of that verse, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does Jesus own our law breaking, 
but we are awarded the merits of his law keeping. When he rose from the tomb, our righteousness rose with him. So across the New Testament, we get language like, you better get in Christ or put on Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27, for in Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized, and here he's not thinking at all about the ceremony that we think of. That's not what he's talking about. He's meaning we are submerged. For as many of you who are submerged into Christ have now what? Put on Christ. The Christian gets help by connecting his entire reality with the reality of Jesus. The Christian goes all in on Jesus. And as such, the Christian is given the incredible opportunity to wear as if he owns it, the righteousness of Jesus. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 2, as you receive Jesus, so, and hear Romans here, go walk in him. We have received Christ. We have identified with Christ through faith. Now we can walk in it. Back to Romans 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But do what? But put on. Do not think of this as just religious language. This is an existence. It's putting on the righteousness of Jesus as if it's our own and therefore make no provision for the flesh. This only makes sense for those who have faith in Christ because only those who have faith in Christ have access to his righteousness. Those who have faith in the Lord Jesus put on his righteousness and only then do we have any choice about not gratifying the desires of the flesh. Only then can we love people. Only then can we submit to government or reverse it. Because we have the righteousness of Jesus, we have no business serving the flesh. The time for those actions, that's gone. Why? The day's at hand. So Paul is arguing that Christians should wake from sleep, realize the fullness of their lives in Christ is upon us, and in so doing live lives that reflect Christ and no longer the deeds of the night. Paul is saying we should become who we already are. We should become who we already are in Christ. We are already covered by the ruler of the day. So why don't we start walking like it? As Hitler slept unaware of the danger coming upon him, let's imagine together a German soldier who's there on the beach watching the Allies land. Imagine the soldier sees a package fall from one of the planes and he goes and rustles over and he retrieves the package. And inside the package, there's a U.S. Army uniform and there's a note. Soldier, the day is dawning. And when it comes, will come the beginning of the end of Hitler's quest. Should you choose you may remove your German uniform now. Put on this U.S. Army uniform. Follow the directions in this map to link up with an Allied troop nearby. All of your aggressions and acts in the past will be forgiven, and you and your family will receive U.S. citizenship. The soldier has a few options. One is he could disbelieve the letter 
ah, there's no way. There's no way that Hitler's quest will ever come to an end. Nah, this is just propaganda. I think I'll just go back to sleep. Or he may believe the author, the, the, the letter, the offer, and think it's just a big trick. Ah, it's a decoy. I'm just going to ignore it. Again, I think I'll just go back to sleep. Everybody else is sleeping. I think I'll just go back to sleep. On the other hand, the soldier could choose to take up this incredible offer of mercy and grace. He would then proceed to remove his German uniform and put on a new uniform. And at that moment, his allegiance must change. Friends, the day is upon us. We are closer to salvation than we have ever been. Now is the time to wear the uniform of the new kingdom and discard the ways of the night. When we imagine the story of that soldier on the beach, it seems far-fetched, fair. But our story, the story of those saved by God's grace is far more incredible and it is perfectly true. The fact that you are hearing the message today, it is evidence that a rescue package has been dropped your way. Every one of us has clearly heard from this text that the day is dawn and the king is coming. We've read the letter of offering an option to trade in our old uniform of the night and put on the uniform of the day. For those who have already believed that the day is coming and dawning, then the clear application is to live in light of the day. For those who are sleeping, living as the world is, asleep to the realities of Christ, may the God of grace stir us from sleep to see the day has dawned and it is not too late. I will close this in prayer. I would love to finish singing All Glory Be to Christ. I'm like you, Mark. I have pictures of, of uh, folks in a halfway drunken state singing uh, the, uh, the other version. Um, and uh, I, I just think it's pretty cool given this text. With all awakeness, in all alertness, with the idea of the day upon us, singing, all glory be to Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the incredible offer that the rescue package came. I know enough of the statistics to know that there are about 1.8 billion people in the world that unless something changes, they'll live their entire lives and no rescue package is falling their way. I know enough statistics and I know what your word says about the few to know that a lot of people will get the rescue package and go back to sleep.
I will never know why you've shown the grace you have to me to open it up and believe. None of us will ever understand the unmerited favor of God to read the rescue package for what it is and believe. Thank you for your kindness. And dear God, would we be those who wear the uniform of the day, believing the day is dawned, the night is far over, the King is coming. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Thank you, Tim. I get to, um, that third verse, if you have your worship guide, or if we can get the third verse. When on the day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us in our steadfast light, and we shall ere his, ere his people be, will glory be to Christ. That's the day that Tim was reminding us from Paul. We're closer to that day than we have ever been. We're close to that day than anybody, uh, you know, doesn't matter who they are. And so let's stand and, and close our service by singing that together, rejoicing in the fact that we have the opportunity, as, as Tim so graciously prayed, we've been given an opportunity to, to give God glory for that. So let's sing together. When on the day, the great I am. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, who was forced to is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall hear his people be all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Amen. With that church, go serve your king.